Hello, and welcome to the We Podcast. My name is Patty Post. And I am Melissa Brandt. And our guest today is Dr. Richard Conlin, an OBGYN out of Boca Raton, Florida. And what did you think about this podcast? You know, I was actually really nervous going in because anytime you have a conversation with a doctor at that level, how intimidating and to ask the wrong question or sound stupid, I was actually blown away of what we covered today. And I walked away going, oh my gosh, I get it. And I understand my body better. And now I can feel like, oh, I can go in and ask the right question. So I was very impressed. Yeah. It's interesting that you only think of an OBGYN for walking in. Okay. I'm going to get my pap. When you have babies, all of the times that you see them, and then you have your postpartum visit, and then you don't really check in with your OBGYN, but he got into so many different things from cervical cancer to hormones, to preeclampsia. Actually, I'm not saying it right. He corrected me, but when you know, pelvic floor trauma, after we have kids and he was very approachable. And I loved it too, because sometimes it's uncomfortable to talk about those things as a woman on how you're feeling or what you experience down under. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, it was great. And it was a breath of fresh air and, uh, it, uh, really is informative. Something that I took away was when you go into see OBGYN, you don't have to necessarily get an exam. If you have symptoms or signs that are going on with your body, you should bring them to them because there's so many lab tests that can be done or blood tests that can be done. Go to the lab, they interpret the results. And then there is a course of action that you take a treatment plan per se. Right. And I think one thing that I took away was don't wait. If there is something that um, your gut is telling you that's not feeling good, or you just have a question, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Mm -hmm. And um, time is of essence. And uh, there's ways to make you feel better or um, get better. And he even mentioned some time sensitive things that we need to be cautious about as women. And if you wait too long, it could be your life. So um, I thought it was really, really powerful. Yeah. Once you actually get symptoms, it's too late. So that's why screening is so important, especially with HPV. Exactly. And just being in tune with your body. Mm -hmm. I hope you get a lot out of this episode with Dr. Richard Conlin. So let's get into the interview. Hey, this is the Wellness Essentials Podcast. We for short. The We Podcast is all things health and wellness a place where women like you can come to be their authentic selves and be a part of a community that supports them in their health journey and every stage of life. This is the podcast for engaging health and wellness entertainment with actionable steps you can take into your everyday life. No topic is off limits when it comes to health and women's lifestyle. Let's face it, being a woman comes with all sorts of fun. Hear real, raw conversations and teachings from experts and everyday women who have been in your shoes and get inspired to make things happen and have the tools to do so. This is the WE Podcast.
Dr. Colin, do you mind giving your background and how many years you've been in practice and tell us about your practice and uh, your patient population? Sure. My name is Dr. Richard Conlin. I'm practicing in Boca Raton, Florida, where I have practiced for over 35 years. I'm a practicing OBGYN, although I have stopped delivering, I still do early prenatal care. And I do a fair amount of gynecological surgery, including robotic surgery in office, minimally invasive. Basically, everything that is done gynecologically. I do some specialize in hormone replacement therapy, and I am a referral center for many recurrent chronic problems with regards to women's vaginal area, chronic pain, heavy bleeding. I'm also on the Miller School of Medicine's faculty as an associate professor, and I do teach over at FAEU to their pre-med students and their residents at Boca Regional Hospital. Impressive. <laughs> you, you don't let any grass grow under your feet, as my grandma would say. You got to keep moving. Otherwise, they catch up with you. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, they do. You mentioned chronic conditions. Can you expand on that chronic conditions that women can um, have? Well, you know, probably the most common one is chronic pelvic pain that uh, I see. And this can start out as menstrual cramps through the teenage years. And what they end up doing is they start labeling patients with endometriosis. And to tell you the truth, if I was to do a laparoscopy where I take a look inside and I took 10 people, seven of them would have endometriosis. So endometriosis can be deep in the pelvis. It can be superficial. You can have a ton of it and have absolutely no symptoms. And you can have a minimal amount of lesions and have a lot of pain. So it depends particularly on where it is. So that's one thing. As women get older, then we get into childbearing years. And then most of my practice at that particular time has to do with initiating prenatal care and then referring them out to the specialist. And then if they're not getting pregnant, we do some evaluation to see why they're not getting pregnant. Now, you have to consider that in the overall picture, 40% is men and 50, 60% is women. So rather than getting into that, it can be either side. Both sides can have problems. Now, women always think of their cycles being 30 days. Well, what they don't know is that men's cycle is usually about 90 days. So you can use that to your advantage. Wow. Say, look, you're just cycling today. <laughs> Tell that to your husband. So the purpose being is that when you do a sperm analysis on men, if you get a normal one, then that settles it. But if you get an abnormal one, it doesn't mean that there's a problem. It just means that it could be at the two ends of the curve. And couples, it's a very nerve wracking thing when you think that you can't get pregnant. Right. Okay. Most people can if they just relax. I tell people, and I've been telling people for 30 years, and I'm quite successful at it, you need to relax. Stop thinking about it. Try to have as much fun as you can. And whatever you do, you never call your husband at work and say, this is the night I'm ovulating. You better be home on time because they're going to go, oh, no. Okay, so you don't ever do that. 
<laughs> After that, it's just routine uh, women's care. And of course, we hope we don't find anything bad along the way. When you get into the fourth decade, it turns out to be some perimenopausal symptomatology. Hormones tend to fluctuate up and down throughout the month. And uh, so you deal with that. Most of that is transient. I find that women have a little fluctuation around 40 and it can last for six months and then everything evens out. I don't know whether it's because of children, the kids are growing up, they're in school, the stresses of life, but whatever. Later on, when you get into the 50s, it's more menopausal. You can start having heavier bleeding. And we treat that. No longer do women have to have hysterectomies because of heavy bleeding. We do ablations, which I've been doing for 15 years. It works very well. Really? Yeah. It's a great product. It's outpatient. It's simple. has minimal complications. And um, it can stop your period, but doesn't affect the hormones. So that works very nicely. Of course, unfortunately, during all these years, you do run into some severe problems, some malignancies. We keep a good track on people with abnormal pap smears, human papillomavirus. And of course, we screen people who have histories of ovarian disease in their family very carefully. So that's kind of an overview. Interesting. You mentioned HPV. Uh-huh. At what time should you be routinely tested for HPV? Okay. So that's a very controversial issue. And there's a lot of information that's floating around about human papillomavirus. First thing we should know is there's over a hundred different strains of HPV. Wow. And it used to be that we were concerned about 9, 11, 16, and 18. 9 and 11 are usually the venereal warts, the growths on the outside, whether it be on your fingers for young kids or growths on the outside of the women's genitalia. The 16 and 18 was originally associated with cervical disease, precancerous lesions, cervical cancer. But what we've learned now is that there are several other strains, 32, 54. There's always some changes I think as we all realize after this past year and a half, we don't know much about viruses and we don't understand how they act. So we have to be looking for trouble. At the present time, they recommend to start doing pap smears and HPV around 2021. I don't really believe that. I believe that it has to do with the patient. If the young lady has had multiple partners throughout her life, then she should be screened earlier. If she's a victim of trauma, then they should be followed very carefully. So multiple partners, increased risk factors, all of that has to be taken into consideration. And I believe that you should have HPV screening in addition to cytology, otherwise called co-testing. Just doing HPV is not going to do the trick. You need to make sure that the HPV has not influenced the cells on the cervix or the vaginal wall. You can get it both places. And that should continue throughout the lifetime. Now, they're starting to tell people in their 50s, oh, you don't need a pap smear anymore. Well, that's when you're going to have trouble. This is when your immune system starts to decrease. The virus didn't go away. It's just sitting there waiting. Oh. So it's not going away. 
you need to watch people as they get older more carefully, not less carefully. I was under the assumption that the virus like went dormant or our body shed it after we gave birth. Is that something that happened? No. What they're talking about there is young women in their 20s, if they get an early cervical lesion, such as mild dysplasia with HPV, because they're young and their immune system is so vigorous that they will suppress the virus and it can become dormant and get the viral levels can decrease quite a bit and it can lie there for a while. So that's what happens. You get infected in your 20s, your natural immune system suppresses it. And then come to your 40s, it starts to bloom, and that's when you start having trouble. And then it takes five, six, seven years, and come your 50s is where you're running into dysplasia. And what is dysplasia? Dysplasia is precancerous lesions. I like to explain dysplasia, and everybody understands termites. Yeah. So if you have termites in your attic, that would be mild dysplasia. If you have termites in your attic and the second floor, that would be CIN2 or moderate dysplasia. If you have termites in all three levels, that would be severe dysplasia or high grade, okay? But your house sits on a cement slab. Well, your cells sit on a cement slab, the last barrier, and that's called the basement membrane. As long as those dysplastic cells do not go below the basement or past the slab, you're okay. If it goes all the way through the house down to the cement, we call that carcinoma in situ, and all of that is curable by taking a leap cone biopsy and just removing that area. Once it goes below the cement or the basement membrane, it becomes invasive, and that can be more severe. It is more severe. Hmm. And then does that where you get uterine cancer or? No, that's where you get cervical cancer. Okay. And cervical cancer is a bad boy. Okay. So it goes below seven millimeters and you can fight that for the rest of your life. And in many cases, it's going to be bad for you in the long run. Many people don't survive. And are there signs or symptoms? Bleeding. After intercourse, bleeding for no reason at all. Usually pain is a very late onset. Really? Yeah. So the key thing here is to find it early. If you get pap smears, even every two years, you have a five-year window in most cases to catch something that it can be fixed very easily. If you let that go by, no good. Uterine cancer is cancer of the body of the uterus. And that is also, there's a large leeway there Mm -hmm. because that's not severe until the cancer goes actually 50% of the wall. It's all simply cured with uh, hysterectomy. So you could go for years without a pap and it is actually detrimental if you have HPV that is invasive. Because insurance companies now are saying, oh, you don't need one after 40 until every five years. I know. What's up with that? Well, that's something that I want to get into on a podcast. But <laughs> what, what do you think it's all about? It's about the money. It's about the money. 
Yeah. So, I mean, they have studies that, that show that it doesn't make any difference. But as I said, and I presented my case at the FDA, I was about self-testing. I was on the panel that did that. And as I said to them, I said, you know, have you, and these academics would get up there and say, well, you know, the statistics show this and that. And, and I turned to them, I said, have you ever sat across from someone and given them very bad news? Because they're not interested in the statistics. Right. They're only interested in themselves. And sitting there telling them, well, you know, statistically, you probably shouldn't have gotten it. Well, <laughs> that's a good way to have somebody crawl over your desk with a knife. Right. You know? <laughs> so that's not it. So as a practicing physician and someone who's dealt with women's care for over 35 years, I'm not interested in the statistics. I'm interested in the people that sit in front of me and trying to keep that down. The pap smear was a wonderful invention and decreased the amount of cervical cancer significantly across the board. But we still lose 14,000 women to cervical cancer every year. Wow. Because they don't get screened. And that's why I promote the self-testing. 14,000. That is a significant number. How significant is that? By the time we're done with this podcast, somebody would have died. Wow. Yeah. And they think that's okay. And it has plateaued. Now, it used to be much, much higher. Mm -hmm. That has plateaued, and that's where it is. And the only way that we're going to get that down is to get everybody screened. But that's like trying to get everybody vaccinated. So here's something that being in medical devices, I was around a lot of devices that were for the prostate or urethra strictures for men. And there was a lot of investment dollars put behind them. And then when we went over to pelvic health and gynecological health, the numbers decreased drastically. And from your experience, do you find that that's true, that the number of research dollars for women versus men and our reproductive organs is not as high as men? You know, I don't know that I can really comment on that, honestly. I will tell you that as a rule, women run healthcare. Okay? Yes. Breast cancer and screening and obstetrics and everything else, it's all up to you. So do I believe that? I don't know. But I know that, you know, we've made big strides in breast cancer. We're trying very hard with ovarian cancer. Uterine cancer, we understand it as long as people will come in. Cervical cancer, we can do very well with as long as women come in. Now, having said that, there's always that small percentage of people that get a very severe type of disease that we don't do very well with. But as a majority, if we can see them and we can screen them, we can help them. So this is a public service announcement to go get your pap or your mammogram if you haven't done it yet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's no excuse. I mean, especially in October. Yeah. Because October is National Breast Screening, and you can get a mammogram for 50 bucks. Yep. You can't get a manicure for 50 bucks, right? That, <laughs> that is true. Very true. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's let's switch gears. Well, I was thinking maybe hormonal therapy for women. 
there are a lot of conversations. We were just out with some friends yesterday in talks of, you know, what do we do when we're in our 40s and 50s? You know, our hormones are imbalanced. You know, there's all different things that we could do, whether it's um, what are the ways that are you seeing or recommending for women in the 40s and 50s in terms of solutions for them and their hormonal balance? Okay. When it comes to hormonal imbalance, the one thing you have to take into consideration here is quality of life. Some people suffer. Some people suffer a lot. Some people don't get any symptoms. Okay. So for those that have considerable symptoms, they sooner or later is going to have to make a decision with regards to hormones versus non-hormones. If you do the herbs and the supplements, I encourage you to change the brand every three months Mm. because they don't have the bioactivity of regular pharmaceuticals. So you have to change them, switch from brand to brand. And for a lot of people that will hold them for mild symptoms or in early menopause or perimenopause. The team at Checkable Medical is famously fussy about what goes into their bodies. Optimal health at every stage and every age is key to living a life you love. Choose better supplements with superior ingredients in simple, easy-to-absorb formats that fit into your daily life. Feel your best with Checkable Wellness. If you're ready to get started, check out CheckableWellness.com for more details. Your healthcare begins at home. If the symptoms are bad enough that it's ruining your life, then you have to consider hormone replacement therapy, or you should. And with that, you need to be counseled as to the overall risk involved with regards to breast cancer and all the other side effects. All right. Now, women have a risk of developing breast cancer one in eight. Wow. Everybody has to take that into consideration. Whether you're BRCA tested or not, it's one in eight across the board. So you do the best you can to try and find it early and hope you do well. And most women will. With regards to quality of life and hormones, let's talk about hormones. There's three estrogens that are made. I like to explain it as high test, medium grade, and low grade. Nobody gives the low grade. That's estrone. It's a weak but insidious and dangerous estrogen, okay? Your body runs on 80% medium-grade estriol and 20% high-test or estradiol. Most of the traditional hormone replacement therapy is estradiol, so they're giving you high-test. And then you should take some progesterone with it. It's progesterone, not progestogen. Progestogen is the synthetic progesterone, and that is associated with breast problems. Oh, wow. Will a doctor prescribe that? Some people do. Progestogens are what's in birth control pills. Okay. It doesn't seem to make a difference, but nobody really knows. Okay. Once you get older, it's progesterone, prometrium, uh, that type of thing. All right. Now, you also need testosterone. So for many years, when I was first out in practice and I would see people, you give them the estrogen and they come back in a month later and I say, how do you feel? And they go, oh, I feel I'm okay. I'm okay. But they're blah. Mm-hmm. Then I started adding testosterone and they come back and say, yep, I'm back. 
I feel good. <laughs> and everybody thinks testosterone has to do with sexual activity. It really doesn't. Once the body is balanced, the body does what the body does. Mm-hmm. Okay. And sexual activity is part of what we do. So once you're balanced, you feel better. But testosterone brings back the clarity, gets rid of the brain fog. But it also has to work together with your thyroid and your adrenal. So when I approach people for hormone replacement therapy, I evaluate all of them. Everything has to be clicking. If we were to go to our doctor to ask for a panel, what's like a cocktail panel that we should ask for to ensure that we are getting the right test done? I would do an FSH, which is called follicle stimulating hormone. This is the brain telling the ovaries to get going. The higher that number, the more you're into menopause. I would get an estradiol level. I would get a testosterone level. You could get free in total, but either one is going to tell you the story. Progesterone has a very short half-life, so they always include it in the panel, but it really doesn't have a significance. Some people like endocrinologists will get LH and all these other sub-factors, but you're not really making that if you're menopausal because you're not ovulating regularly. So I would get those. I would get a thyroid profile to make sure your thyroid is working properly. The thyroid is the motor of the endocrine system. If that's not working, nothing's working. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would do. That's what I do. That's exactly what you do for your patients. Right. Okay. And then they come back, you read it, you analyze it, and then you make a recommendation. What's the treatment? I give them a choice. Do you want to do traditional? Or you want to do bioidentical, which can be delivered as rapid dissolved tablets, topical cream, drops, or we can do pellets, which are testosterone pellets. Can you see that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. A little pellet in there? Yeah. And that's put in your backside under the skin, and that sits there and encapsulates, and then your body draws from that because testosterone metabolizes down into estradiol. Okay. And it kind of self-regulates. Hmm. Not exactly like that. Still take the progesterone. So those are the three choices. Financially, insurance pays for the traditional. It doesn't necessarily pay for the bioidentical, which is a combination. So that we balance for you. So what happens is, Everybody's an individual. I prefer to get blood work after they're on it for a while and they feel good to make sure they're not getting too much. I want people to get the smallest amount to give them the maximum amount of relief. And I do that for the bioidentical as well as the pellets. I like it. Very helpful. It is super helpful. Mm -hmm. Is there any transdermal patches that deliver? Uh Oh, there are. I should have mentioned that too. I don't give any pills. My rapid dissolve tablets dissolve in the mouth, but I don't like pills because that goes through your liver Mm. and that changes the coagulation profile as well as your lipid profile. So if I give the traditional approach, uh, I give it as a patch. Oh, interesting. I like that. Let's switch gears now. I want to talk about bacterial vaginitis or is it bacterial vaginosis? BV. BV. We're just called BV. We can just call it BV. Right. Okay. This is a very common infection. And although it can be associated with sexual partners, it really isn't considered a sexually transmitted disease. But it is recurrent. 
and you do pass it back and forth between the partners, okay? And what it is, it's, it reflects a change in the environment of the vagina. The vagina has to have certain bacteria in it, and those bacteria work together to keep the, the microbiome, so to speak, we'll use fancy terms here, in check and in balance so that it takes care of itself. We like to refer to the vagina as a self-cleaning oven. Left to itself, it will come back into balance. But when you introduce sexual activity, you introduce virons, viruses, bacteria, jellies, all sorts of things, okay? And that tends to change it. When someone has growth of certain types of bacteria, it promotes the recurrence of bacterial vaginosis, such as avaginale. These are all facultative anaerobes that can be in there, or megasphera, and there's two types. One is associated with trichomonas, one is associated with BV. So all of these things should be looked at carefully to see what's going on. The telltale test where people come in is they get a certain odor. It's a strong odor. It's a fishy odor. And this occurs with intercourse because the male is alkaline and she is basic. And when they mix, they give off that odor when that's present. It also, if you get it recurrently, it gets caught in a mucus envelopment that sticks on the wall. I, I like to tell people, if you've ever... Probably not now, but maybe when we were all in college and things, and we wake up in the morning, we didn't brush our teeth the night before because we didn't know where you were the night before, and you have that stuff all over your teeth, right? <laughs> That's what happens, and the bacteria harbors in that. So it could be, oh, you'll remember that one, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> and what happens is that harbors in the vagina. So one or two treatments of medication isn't going to do it which means you have to have recurrent bacterial treatments and get rid of all the other associated bacteria. And is that an antibiotic, oral antibiotic? Can be. Sometimes it can be a cream. They have new medicines that are out that come as drinks. You take it once and you're set. Uh, they have new medications that are coming out, even for candidiasis. Remember, there's several different types of candida. One is easily treated with the cream and one isn't. Now they have medicines that's a one-time dose to take care of both. So we are making progress in this area, but you just can't shoot from the hip. You have to have some testing to find out exactly where you are. Mm -hmm. And running to CVS to grab Monistat or if you're douching a lot. We don't douche. No douches. No douches. <laughs> we we agree. No, that that's over. <laughs> if you used to think that was a good idea. We know that's not a good idea. Because it it takes the good bacteria away. It just disturbs everything. Yeah. And it takes time to rebuild. It will rebuild. Mm -hmm. Now, as you get older and you're not making as much estrogen on your own, the vaginal area gets drier and it presents a whole different set. Uh, bacteria and problems that are associated with that. It's like a desert. Not so much as a desert. Remember, your skin is always exfoliating, right? Yeah. So is the vagina. So if you don't have that discharge coming out all the time, it's sitting in there. 
Oh. We call that desculmative vaginitis. So they sit there and that, that makes a focus for infection. Hmm. And so do you take an antibiotic for that as well? No, most of the time we use some estrogen vaginal cream periodically, like a couple times a week, just to get the moisture back flowing. Not enough to really be at risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I give a lot of people that small amount of estrogen infrequently, but on a regular basis who have had breast cancer and things like that. Mm -hmm. If you feel like you have this reoccurring yeast infection, having a test What if you don't have health insurance and you want to test from home? You have a product that's just get tested Uh at org and you run a panel of tests. Can you tell us what that panel is? Because there could be listeners that want to order it. Yeah. There's three of them that we like to do. There's an STD panel, but if you're pretty sure you don't have, you don't fall in that realm and you're just getting recurrent vaginitis then we would test for BV, and we would also test for E. coli, some of the bacteria that are inherently present down there that can become a problem once the environment gets out of balance. And we would test for Megasphera and Avaginale, all of it, so that we get a nice picture of what's going on. I still have patients who come into my office at all ages and say, well, I have a yeast infection. And we do a culture, and it's not a yeast infection. It's a bacterial infection. So not every irritation, itchiness, discharge, or things like that is yeast. But that's all we knew about 30 years ago. So that's stuck with everybody. Oh. <laughs> so I shouldn't call it a yeast infection. Well, most people come in and say, I've got something going on down here. So if you're at home and you have something going on... <laughs> and you don't want to go to the doctor or you can't get in or something like that, then it's better to start doing the uh, kits that are available out there, your kid, my kid, all of them that are available out there so that you can uh, get treated. Mm -hmm. It's easy. You'll have the kit in two days. You do the kit, send it in, you'll get the results back 36, 48 hours. It seems like with a lot of what we've talked about today, you don't need the pelvic exam to be diagnosed. It actually is lab results. And that's what you use to determine a diagnosis. Right. If you have a problem, abnormal bleeding, postcoital bleeding, pelvic pain, anything that's going on that you feel is anatomically different than at this particular point, there is no way you can do it at home. However, through telemedicine platforms, the appropriate test can be ordered because we'll do an ultrasound anyway, no matter what. Hmm. When you have uh, preeclampsia and you have had pelvic floor trauma, we have a friend that is going through physical therapy and every time she ran or sneezed, she would wet herself. So what happened was, Everyone says, oh, do Kegels, do Kegels. You have to tighten it up. Well, she had the opposite where she was always tight and she wasn't able to relax. Uh And so she's now going through some physical therapy where they are teaching her how to relax. Uh And I think there's not a lot of awareness around that. And we end up just living with it. 
And I think because of the slings and meshes of what happened, you know, 10 years ago, and we're very nervous of that, or we've seen our mothers go through, you know, problems with that, that now we're kind of in this gray area of, well, okay, should we just live with it? And wondering what you recommend to your patients. I do pelvic floor here at my office. Okay. A lot. And I have to tell you, and I also did the slings and I did the surgeries and I've done all that. And I did not believe that the pelvic floor rehab was going to do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I was wrong, very wrong. Okay. And it works very well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So try to explain this for people that are not looking at me. The pelvis is a bowl, it's a bowl made up of muscles. And when you breathe, like your diaphragm, it goes up and down. As time goes on, those muscles get weak, either due to the lack of estrogen, trauma, children, whatever. And they're not stimulated. So with pelvic floor, they stimulate those muscles to come back to life. And they they allow you to realize what muscles you should be stimulating. Mm. So you pull that up. I had a professor over at FAU pretty interesting case is that she developed really total incompetence. Oh no. And so her career is over. Yeah. So we ended up doing the pelvic floor. It took her oh 10 weeks of treatment, but she's back to work. Now I don't know how long it'll last because you really don't know what the etiology that causes it, but there is hope. I have a sign in my office that says, sometimes I laugh so hard, tears run down my leg. <laughs> and it's true. And it's, it can be incapacitating to women. It's a big deal. It is mm-hmm. a very big deal. Uh, I don't know where the preeclampsia came from with the pelvic floor. Is she young, old? She's in her mid-40s. She has a couple of children. Yeah, so I would. she should do the pelvic rehab she should find it. She can find it at a medical center nearby. She, it's, or you could call a company called Consortio. Okay. And that's who I use. And they send a, a tech out and it works very well. It's, I would say, with my experience over the past couple of years, we're at 85%. Really? That's very good. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I think this was a information packed session with you, Dr. C. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Our time with the doc (laughs) is always valuable. No problem. You want me to come back for questions or whatever you want to do, you know, I'm, you know, I'll do it. (laughs) Well, you're the best. Thank you, Dr. Conlon. It was very nice to be with you. And good luck. Have a nice day. Thank Thank you. You You too. Nice meeting you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the We Podcast as much as us. If you want more wellness goodies, head over to the wellnessessentialspodcast.com for show notes, links, and resources mentioned in today's podcast. Remember to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to get all the wellness details as soon as they are released. Cheers to living your healthiest and happiest life.